We need a global policeman, and the United States is the only reliable and desirable candidate for that job. I think his remarks are divisive, stupid and wrong, and I think if he came to visit our country, I think he'd unite us all against him. Donald Trump is a leader. He will reassert America's position as the nation with the best values to lead the world. When you have the nuclear codes at your fingertips, you can't have a thin skin or a tendency to lash out. You need to be steady and measured and well-informed. If I was an American citizen, I wouldn't vote for Hillary Clinton if you paid me. I have great faith in the American people. Look forward to working with whoever gets elected in November. Hello and welcome to The Global Election on Monocle 24. I'm Steve Bloomfield. After the end of the Cold War, the US was left as the world's sole superpower. The end of history, the new world order, however you wanted to term it, America was supposedly untouchable. Much has changed in the generation since. We've had the rise and stumble of the European Union, some of whose leaders saw itself, still see itself in fact, as a rival power base. And we're also living through an age of terrorism and asymmetric war. The US may have the world's largest military, but a terrorist group in the Middle East can still strike at America's heart. But today we want to talk about a different sort of rival, one perhaps that many Americans still see through the lens of the Cold War, China. At some stage in the near future, China is likely to overtake the US as the world's largest economy. And the two nations are increasingly clashing diplomatically too, over what the US sees as Chinese aggression in the South China Sea and what China sees as American interference in their region. What will the election of Trump or Clinton mean for US relations with China? And who would Chinese leaders prefer? Welcome to the global election. In a moment, I'll be joined by Rana Mitter, the director of the Oxford China Centre, and by Kerry Brown, who's the author of The Rise of Xi Jinping. But first, few people have had as much influence on America's relationship with China as this man. Chaz Freeman was President Nixon's interpreter on his famous visit to China in 1972. He later became the director of Chinese affairs at the State Department. And in the 1990s, when he was at the Department of Defense, Freeman was the driving force behind the renewal of military ties between the two nations. And he joins me now. Chaz Freeman, uh, thank you very much for joining us today. If you uh, could sum up the history of America's relationship with China over the past 50 years, how would you do that? Well, it's probably been the most volatile relationship we have had over that period. Uh, We've gone from overt hostility and an effort to isolate uh, China, which uh, suited the Chinese just fine, to a collusion against the Soviet Union in its last days, cooperation in Afghanistan against the Soviet occupation, a robust military relationship, all truncated by the events of June 4th, uh, 1989, in Tiananmen Square. And we've fumbled our way back into a relationship which now includes an amazing degree of economic interdependence, very, very rich human interaction, huge tourist exchanges, and every kind of scientific and cultural cooperation you can imagine. Uh, even as we are now developing a very antagonistic military relationship. So it's been up, down, and all around over the 50 years. 
And of course, the big change was when Nixon famously went to China and you went along with him. You were the interpreter in the room. When you think back to that trip, how nervous were you and other people within the team that this could fail? Were you aware of the dangers? Oh, it was a gamble. And we all knew that uh, it might well go wrong. That's what made it such a bold stroke by Mr. Nixon and uh, Henry Kissinger, his advisor. But the initiative was Nixon's, not Kissinger's. And I would say uh, there was a huge sigh of relief and a great deal of jubilation, actually, as we took off from Shanghai, having pulled off a major reorientation of international affairs in the Shanghai communique. And of course, that cooperation continued over the next 20 years, and you were a big part of the team helping to re-establish defense and military relations with China in the 1990s. Why did you think that that was a good idea at the time? Uh, Well, I was concerned, um, in retrospect, quite correctly, that in the absence of direct contact and dialogue exchanges, um, that mutual suspicion would grow Ignorance would grow, suspicion would prosper, and uh, suspicion easily evolves into antagonism and even hostility. And we had no contact after the Tiananmen uprising was put down. So we reached out to the Chinese military, whom we thought correctly were an important element in Chinese policymaking, in an effort to stabilize the relationship and uh, to ensure that we didn't drift willy-nilly into military antagonism. And that worked for quite a while. Uh, However, as I said, um, we are now well along in the drift that I feared might occur. That drift that you say you feared might occur, why do you think that's taking place and and where could it lead? Well, there are multiple factors, I believe. Uh, One is the obvious one that... um, Since around 1875 or 1880, the United States has been the world's largest economy. That's 140 years, a long time, and uh, we're losing that status. Since 1945, we have been the preeminent power, in fact, the dominant power in the Western Pacific, uh, having finished off Japanese power, the Japanese having done in the European imperialists, And we're now losing that status as China returns to wealth and power and influence in the region. So there's nervousness about loss of status, about um, shifting uh, power balances. And we have had a, a relationship in the region with many states, some of them allies, some of them partners, some of them simply friendly countries, um, which now have uh, territorial disputes with China in the East and South China Seas that we have felt obliged to defend, help them defend. And this has put the U.S. and China into a direct military confrontation that is uh, becoming even more uh, fraught with danger than the Taiwan issue, which has always been with us. And can you actually envisage that military confrontation becoming a reality? Neither side wants that. Uh, Both sides will do their best to avoid it. But the problem when you have large vessels maneuvering around each other, playing games of chicken with each other and with shore installations, 
like those the Chinese have now established in the South China Sea, is that accidents can happen. And the situation actually around the Senkaku or Diaoyu Islands in the East China Sea between Japan and China is in many ways more tense uh, than anything in the South China Sea. And uh, those are two major powers, uh, one of which is closely allied with the United States. We could easily find ourselves dragged into something we don't at all wish to see. And when we look at the upcoming election in November and you listen to the rhetoric from the Republican nominee Donald Trump, whether that's criticizing uh, China when it comes to trade or whether that's suggesting that Japan and Korea should be left on their own to defend themselves, do those statements, do those thoughts from Mr. Trump worry you? Uh, Well, yes and no. Uh, First of all, uh, the man says a great many things without any evidence that he's thought them through or is able to translate them into uh, a policy. Uh, Second, some of what he's saying actually resonates quite closely with the sentiments in the public at large uh, who believe that uh, it is time for our allies uh, to provide for their own defense to the extent they can, and their ability to do so is now very considerable, rather than relying entirely on the United States. And so uh, there is a mood in the country which argues for a reset in U.S. international relations, not just in Europe, but in Asia, and Mr. Trump reflects that. Finally, um, I think on the trade and economic relationship, the approach that he seems to take, which is all you have to do to resolve the issues with China and others is slap them around a bit, is dreadfully naive and could lead to a major trade war with global implications. But on the other hand, um, he seems to be an inveterate bargainer, always trying to put people off uh, their stride and to maximize his own um, flexibility. So one doesn't know what he would do. Would you worry that the the pragmatism that has driven much of American-Chinese relations over the last 50 years may go out of the window? Well, that is a concern. Um, it's a concern equally, um, I should say, uh, with Hillary Clinton, who has a record of uh, quite belligerent approaches to China, starting in the 1995 uh, International Women's Conference in Beijing, where she had some very harsh things to say about the Chinese. She's not liked. Uh, Some people in China like Trump because they think he'd be bad for America in ways that are good for China. Uh, That's the same sentiment one hears from some Russians. Charles Freeman, thank you very much indeed. So what impact would a President Trump or President Clinton have on America's relationship with China? I'm joined now by Rana Mitter, a professor of the history and politics of modern China, who's also the director of the University of Oxford China Centre, and here in the studio by Kerry Brown, professor of Chinese studies and the director of the Lao China Institute at King's College London. Rana and Kerry, welcome to you both. Rana, Mitta, perhaps if I can begin with you, uh, perhaps you could just outline for us the big issues as you see them between the US and China. In a sense, there's really only one big issue, but it's a question of how it's balanced, which is the way in which China's growing 
economic and military strength and power in the Asia-Pacific region can be balanced against the continuing presence of the US, along with a string of its own allies in the Asia-Pacific region. And the question for the Americans will be, how far can they either adapt to or in some ways live alongside the growing Chinese presence in the region? And how far do they feel that they have to push back? On the Chinese side, of course, it's the other way around, a question of how far and how fast they can exercise what they think in a sense is their much-deserved and long-worked-for expansion into the region after what they would see as a century in which really they've been forced to take a much more backseat role in their own backyard than they ever would have wanted or expected. And Kerry Brown, um, when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, she talked about this pivot to Asia that the US was going to carry out. And part of that would include a new form of relationship with China. Now, obviously, the US got somewhat sidetracked over the past eight years with uh, many different issues in the Middle East. When you look back to the idea of that pivot, do you think that there are ideas from that which a President Clinton would try to pick up on? Clinton is seen in China, I think, as being pretty tough. She's associated, when she went to the ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations um, meeting, I think in 2009, with this idea of America being legitimately involved in the region. And I think that that really irritated the Chinese. And you could say since 2012 with Xi Jinping that it's been a sort of a pushback. But under Xi Jinping, I think there's also been a sort of bigger game, which is, as, as Rana said, this idea of sort of historical rectification or a sort of renaissance and a kind of leadership that's going to be delivering this very elusive thing of a sort of unified, strong, powerful China. And that's going to be unified, strong and powerful in its region, first of all, before it hits anywhere else. And how does America sort of respond to that? Does it just say, yeah, that's OK, we're happy with you being so strong in this region? Or does it actually try and push back in some areas. And if it does push back, the consequence is going to be very unfortunate. So it's very, very uncertain at the moment. And I don't think that uncertainty will disappear anytime soon. Rana, whenever we talk about US-China relations, it is often in that sense that this is a battle between two rivals. And yet we've also seen recently agreements between the two on climate change. Do you think that actually there are, to completely bastardise a phrase, more things that unite them than divide them? The problem is that there isn't one very good term to explain how the United States and China relate to each other. They're not enemies, you know, it's not the Soviet Union versus the United States of the Cold War era, but they're certainly not allies or even really friends. I think rivals perhaps is the best way to put it. And with your rivals, the same might be true in a professional context. Sometimes you work together and sometimes you're seeking to outdo each other. I think one of the ways you could put that into perspective is to take what Kerry said, I think he's absolutely right about, you know, what the prospects would be for a Hillary Clinton presidency. But inevitably, we have to think a little bit about what happens if the position wins. And if that was the case, then actually the relationship between the US and China might change in some very interesting, if somewhat alarming ways. One of the things that Donald Trump has said, and frankly said a lot, much of which is not necessarily very consistent, is that it may be a time to reset the US relationship with its allies in East Asia. He was thinking particularly of Japan and South Korea, famously said at one point that maybe we should just, you know, the West should give them the right to make their own nuclear weapons and let them just get on with it, which uh, caused a certain amount of palpitation uh, on, on many sides. But one of the less stated 
flip sides of that kind of argument on Trump's side would be that maybe a Trump-led United States would just have less interest in the region, less interest in stopping China from actually seeking that more dominant role. And that means in a weird way, there might be policymakers in China, a bit like in Russia, who rather welcome the idea of a Trump victory because it would make it more easy to pursue their economic, military and cultural goals in the region. Kerry, China is actually, strangely, one of the only areas of policy, there are only seven actually, where Donald Trump has a policy position that he's put on his website. There's a a whole document you can read. I say whole document. It's four sides of A4. Uh, Reforming the US-China trade relationship to make America great again. And uh, it says here the Trump plan will achieve the following goals. Bring China to the bargaining table by immediately declaring it a currency manipulator. Protect American ingenuity and investment by forcing China to uphold intellectual property laws. Reclaim millions of American jobs uh, by putting an end to China's illegal export subsidies, strengthen our negotiating position by lowering our corporate tax rate, and so on. Um, Do you think any of those four goals, as he describes them, are achievable? I'm surprised that uh, Chinese officials or academics that I've talked to in the last sort of month or so are so nonchalant about Trump being president. They are way less worried, it seems, than, uh, you know, we are in Europe. And also, you know, the Global Times and more, I suppose you'd say, nationalistic media in China are really fascinated by him. I think they find him, you know, this is very entertaining. He's talk about getting, you know, Japan sort of to have its own nuclear weapons and really getting out of the region. I think they do see that as an opportunity, but I think they think it's very unlikely. I think they probably read American politics pretty well. They put a lot of effort in and they know that candidates say the most ridiculous things before they get elected. And they see Trump as probably the ultimate paper tiger, you know, this big talking guy who is not really going to be able to deliver a lot of this if he did get elected. Do you think Um, they're right to think that, though? Well, it's clear that the core problem is that America and Europe and many other markets are very angry at the way in which, you know, China has dumped um, steel and other products into their markets. And I think that's the problem, that China's trade practices have been regarded as a real kind of economic and a security threat. Rana, you said before you couldn't really characterise the relationship between China and US as as enemies, rivals perhaps. But if you do have a president in Donald Trump who makes it clear that he actually, you know, you, you read all the, these statements that he's put out and, you know, maybe it's a bit far to say that he sees China as an enemy, but perhaps he sees him as a, a bit more than a rival. I think, in a sense, we also need to think about the other side of the equation, the Chinese side. While I think my characterization of rivalry is right at the moment, there's also the reality that the Chinese have been building up their presence in the Asia-Pacific region, and as I said, in both economic and military terms. And therefore, it's clear that they consider the United States more and more to be essentially an illegitimate actor in the region. There is more and more discussion in Chinese media of why does the United States have the right to be in the region, to have input into Pacific policy, to create this string of allies, when you know it's more than 70 years since the end of World War II, which of course is the reason that America had this presence in, in, in the first place. With that context, you can start slipping quite easily into a quite militaristic sort of language. And I think that would be a very dangerous direction for the region to go. Kerry, do you share that fear that we could end up with, certainly if it's a President Trump, a sort of a more militaristic situation in the South China Sea, for example? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's a very real possibility. What you've got, I think Shinzo Abe, you know, the Prime Minister of Japan, said a couple of years ago to the Financial Times, he used this, you know, sort of interesting idea of this is almost like a pre-World War One kind of scenario. We've got all these alliances uh, with America, but also, you know, inter-alliances in the Asian region. And, you know, in a sense, you only need to have one small trigger event to kind of set the big powers against each other. And everyone's involved. I mean, you know, America, Russia, uh, China, um, you know, even Europe up to a point are involved in this because the South China Sea is this massive logistic route. I think something like 40% of the world's trade goes through it. So it's really easy to see that a small event can kind of just expand. uh, And I presume that's why Xi Jinping and Abe have have sort of agreed for this, you know, communication red light, um, you know, sort of hotline because... While rhetorically and in terms of, you know, political theatre, they want to kind of demonstrate to their domestic constituencies they're being tough and strong and they're kind of scoping out strategic, you know, space around them. They know really that a true military conflict would be devastating. I mean, their legitimacy is based on delivering good things for their people. No one spoke about, you know, war, which is going to destroy value. So I think, you know, everyone doesn't want that. But then, of course, people before the First World War were writing books saying there can be no war. Mistakes can happen. Rana, we've mentioned there Japan and also Korea. But for the other smaller American allies in the region, what do you think their hopes and or fears are regarding either a Clinton or Trump presidency? I think that such allies, or at least countries that are well inclined towards the United States, are becoming increasingly worried that they're going to be forced into an either-or sort of situation. We note, actually, that within the last few weeks, there was certainly more Chinese pressure on Singapore, for instance, a country which has always been very pro-American in its orientation, but which has always maintained very good relations with Beijing in the last couple of decades. And there's more of a sense from Beijing that Singapore and countries like that are going to be forced to take sides or at least to come up with statements or rhetoric that back up the Chinese side somewhat further. I think that there is a continuing concern that the current situation in which countries in the region, both large and small, can continue to get economic benefit from taking part in the expansion of trade that comes with a a growing Chinese presence, very large consumer base inside the country, and obviously global connections, along with the assurance of the US military framework that continues to exist in the East Asia region. So I think we see in some countries there's some quite skillful tacking. One person who I think has actually done this rather well in Burma is Aung San Suu Kyi, who's not, of course, the president. I mean, the constitution there um, has not allowed her to take up that position, but she's certainly a power broker. And in navigating between a growing Chinese presence in Southeast Asia, but also an increasing Western presence in in Burma, she's done quite a a skillful job. More worrying are places like Thailand, where the new military-backed government has shown a very strong orientation towards China in what was traditionally a quite American-oriented country. The same is true with President Duterte, the new president of the Philippines, who, despite the ruling against China over the South China Sea at the Hague Court of Arbitration just at uh, the end of June, has nonetheless shown a certain amount of pragmatic tacking towards China. So I think the US is going to be looking out for some of those slightly more kind of fragile allies and making sure as much as possible that they're not picked off at the edges by Beijing. Rana and Kerry, thank you both very much indeed. Finally today, how does China view this relationship? I'm Diane Weiliang. I'm an author based in London. I was born in China, in Beijing. 
These days, I write novels、uh, full time. For the Chinese government, over the past few years, particularly, they have become much more confident, and they've realized the power that they possess, both economically and politically. So they've seen themselves as risen in the world stage. They would like to be taken seriously and perhaps treated as equal with America. Not officially, but in the back corridors, the preference is Hillary Clinton, because it's better the devil you know than the devil you don't know. But for both candidates, including the Democrats, they have taken increasingly hawkish tones in the relationship with China. So it's going to be difficult between the relationship for China and U.S., regardless who wins. Seventy percent of all Chinese parents who send their children overseas to study, they send them to America. America is viewed not only as superpower, but it is as sort of inspiration in terms of education, in terms of job market, and in general innovation. The whole sort of Chinese dream is very much modeled on the American dream. They would very much prefer the candidate who is pro-immigration, pro-foreigners, and more open-minded toward international migration, and to be in the White House. On this case, the people and the government are very much on the same footing, and they would prefer America not to interfere in the region. This is becoming a real issue because China is having conflicts with. Its neighbors, and that is fairly recent with the South China Sea buildup, and it is becoming a critical security issue in the region. It will, in many ways, become very critical in the China-U.S. relationship because it's to U.S. security interests that they have a say in the region. That was the Chinese novelist Diane Wei Lang. Stay tuned. In a moment, we'll have a highlight from next week's episode. If you're enjoying listening to the global election, then why not listen each week to the Foreign Desk, where we take a look at a single story, find two or three great guests, and try to work out what's going on. It might be the story that's dominating the news that week. The main thing they wanted to do was to stop to get rid of Obama. How are you going to negotiate with that? It might be something we think everybody else is ignoring. Children, elderly—it doesn't matter. Anybody that is leaving the country is going to be shot. Either way, the format's the same: guests who know their stuff, talking knowledgeably, so that we all end up knowing a little bit more than we did before. That's the Foreign Desk with Steve Bloomfield, airing every Saturday at 12 noon London time, and available at any time on Monocle.com. Next time on the global election, we'll be talking about the U.S. and Europe, and my guests will include Greece's former finance minister Yanis Varoufakis. We'll come on to Donald Trump in a moment, but Hillary Clinton is someone whose politics, I imagine, you don't really share. I consider her to be a thoroughly unappetizing candidate and a particularly dangerous prospect for、uh, geopolitical equilibrium. And peace, a, a dangerous prospect. Oh, absolutely. How come? Well, you only have to watch her, watch the video 
of the mutilation and murder of Gaddafi. Thoroughly despicable person. But anyone who can watch that horrific video, as Mrs. Clinton did, celebrating and punching the air, is a very dangerous person. Her connections with uh, the military establishment on the one hand and Wall Street on the other, her disregard of uh, all conventions of probity regarding financing makes her a very unappetizing prospect. Having said that, my recommendation to my American friends is um, in swing states, only in swing states, hold your nose and vote for Clinton. And I assume you say that because you look at the prospects of Donald Trump. Donald Trump is um, not a lunatic in my estimation. He may be, but this is not the issue. Donald Trump is a primal form of fascist. And I mean that not as a term of abuse, but I mean it uh, as a historically grounded comment. If you compare him with Benito Mussolini, you'll find significant uh, similarities, not only in style and in temperament. I don't particularly mind style and temperament, but primarily policies. He is constantly appealing to blue-collar workers, to the ones that have been left behind by an economic crisis, like Mussolini was. He has some policies that seem very progressive. Remember, Mussolini was the one who introduced social security in Italy. The trade-off for this is increasing authoritarianism, misogyny, racism, and a kind of uh, oeuvre which um, is very, very similar to 1920s Italian fascism. That's it for episode two of The Global Election. Episode three will be available from next weekend. You can't vote for us, but you can rate us. If you liked what you heard, why not give us a rating on iTunes? You can also find us on SoundCloud, monocle.com slash radio, and even now Spotify. The Global Election was produced by Rhys James. It was researched by Bill Lutie and edited by Alex Funnell. I'm Steve Bloomfield. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.